Thank you, Nancy, and the worship leaders preparing us very well for what we're going to consider today. Second verse, same as the first, a little bit louder, a little bit worse. Today we learn from the few, numbers 13 and 14. Let's remind ourselves of where we are. We began a series for the month of August called Good with Numbers coming from the book in the Bible called Numbers that has a few numbers we need to be good with. Really? Book of names and tribes and families and clans, seemingly endless uh, norms and regulations, the numbering of the people of Israel, some bad stories of stubborn, rebellious foolishness, so dry, so mundane, so boring. So what? Well, here's what. This is inherently a book of worship, as we've said, because worship is most active and accurate, most of what it's intended to be when it permeates and fills the normal, the everyday, the mundane. When we make the most of every opportunity, when we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do all for the glory of God, we then are truly worshiping. When we live in constant, conscious communion with Christ, in our words and deeds, in the most normal and otherwise benign activities, we're taking worship where it belongs. As I keep saying, someone has said, all we do is worship, or it's idolatry. It's all about Him, or it's all about us. And this is the challenge of the book of Numbers. Lessons from those who heard and knew and saw the power of God and yet fell into that pattern of not trusting. People just like us who know so much, have heard so much, have seen so much, and yet fall into that pattern of failing to trust as we should. But not just lessons of that, also lessons of a God of great patience continues to tolerate our distrusting ways who sends more and more lessons and gives us more and more opportunities to learn what it is to truly worship. So the outstanding question that I keep asking is, are you good with numbers? Can you be good with these numbers? The first number we began with was one, where God begins with Himself. He wants to bless you. His idea, not ours. The beautiful Ironic, not ironic, okay, ironic blessing of Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you and make His face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. The Lord turn His face towards you and give you peace. That isn't a wish, a, a, a hope, a, I, I, I wonder if God would ever do that. This was God's idea to do that, to bless you. But then we went to number two. That's the number one. That's where God wants to start. God leads with love. God always leads with love. But then we went to number two, man's curse. Now in the big picture of numbers here, they have, they have left Egypt. God is preparing them for where they're going to enter. As we heard today, the land's been explored. Now they, they haven't sinned yet, but then, <clears throat> then the rebellion begins. Numbers 11 and 12, man's curse. From God's blessing, we move to man's 
curse, these blind eyes and hungry hearts, the unquenchable thirst of man for himself. God is gracious and he wants to bless, but man is selfish and he wants his own way. He wants another way. That caused us in dealing with number two to deal with two attributes of God. From the first attribute, we see that God is love, that he wants to love. From the second attribute, we must deal with God's holiness because enters the picture sin. What does it mean that God is holy? Very difficult, an enormous concept. Tried to reduce it to a simple thought that that simply means he's not like us. Now, if he's not like us, that means this is very difficult for us to understand. And like the people in Numbers, our tendency is to want another way, a two instead of one. Another way, another leader, another means of provision. And we learn from this that we can't fix this because we have chosen way number two instead of the perfect and the holy way, way number one. Only God can fix this. We cannot know this without His perfect intervention in correcting the problem. But we also learned that there is a right and a wrong. There are consequences. There are absolutes and there are consequences for obeying or rebelling against those absolutes. Blessing or cursing. We learned that two is meant to be one. We may want another way, but God, God has the best way. Can we be good with those numbers? Can we let God draw us from two back into one? And practically we saw that that meant being tuned to his perfection. We joined the songwriter in singing, Tune my heart to sing thy praise. Allow God to foster in us a gratefulness that would allow us to recognize that one is the best way, two is not. Now number three. Our third number. Second verse, same as the first, a little louder, a little worse. Learning from the few in Numbers 13 and 14. Now, chapters 11 and 12 were so discouraging, I tried to give you some hope at the end of that by dipping into chapter 13 so that we could see all that God had in store. In fact, one of God's answers to their uh, rebellion was to say, wait a minute, uh, can we just put a pause on this and let's look across to all that there is that I want to give you. Maybe that will help you see that one is better than two. And trust me, look at what I have for you. Most of chapter 13 is about uh, those who went in and explored the uh, promised land and all that they saw, which was great stuff. And now we come to what we just love to take note of as we read the Old Testament looking from the New Testament. We love to look at these stubborn hearts of these people and say, how foolish, how crazy. Why didn't they trust and obey? Couldn't they see all that God had in store for them? But in, in our doing it, we condemn ourselves, don't we? Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, these things, referring to these very things, happened to them as examples and were written down as a warning for us. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Why are we so susceptible? Why are we so prone 
to repeat our mistakes. Well, let's let the number three help us understand a little more about that. There is a reason we keep repeating our mistakes, and that is the folly of everyone's doing it. So let me read from chapter 13 and verses 31 to 33. But the men who had gone up with them, with him, said, We can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread a bad They spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. Really? Where did they see that? All the people we saw are of great size. We saw the Nephilim. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our eyes and we looked the same to them. Now, this is the majority of the twelve that went. They spread a bad word among the people. It'll never work. But this is the folly of the majority. For whatever reason, have you noticed this? For whatever reason, bad news always trumps good news. Right? Every time. Criticism outweighs affirmation. Always. You notice that? All the people around you that love and care for you and affirm you every day, and then one person makes one critical comment and everything falls apart, right? Every time. The slightest suspicion is easily believed as gospel truth instead of the benefit being given in light of all the good that one has done. Look at these threes that we see in the passage. There's three against one. Milk, honey, and fruit, but... I mean, there they are. They're carrying. They're, look, look at all the great stuff, but, 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 it'll never work. Complaining against the three. Moses and Aaron and the Lord. <clears throat> that night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. I'm in chapter 14. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly. If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to let us fall by the sword? Milk, honey, fruit, but it'll never work. You know, it's all because of Moses and Aaron and God after all. Hmm. You don't blame God, do you? Hmm. I'll come back to that thought. Even plan number three. We should choose a leader, verse 4 of chapter 14. We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. So not, forget plan number one. We didn't want, we want plan number two. No, let's even come up with plan number four. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll go back to Egypt. And yet we have God's good three, nevertheless, coming from the mouth of Moses. And the Lord gets angry here, and he's going to destroy these people. And Moses appeals for the people, and he even says, Lord, you are slow to anger, abounding in love, and forgiving sin and rebellion. You see that? Even in the midst of all of this bad threes, God is slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiving sin and rebellion. But we also have punishment in threes. In chapter 14, verse 18, it says that, that this sin will be meted out on to the third and even the fourth generation. 
We have the, uh, in verses 36 and 37 of chapter 14, we, we have them exploring, giving a bad report, and then being responsible. Look at that. Uh, 1 plus 2 equals 3 in verses 36 and 7. So the men that Moses had sent to explore the land and return and made the whole community grumble against him by spreading a bad report to them. These, these men who were responsible for spreading the bad report about the land were struck down and died of a plague before the Lord. We have punishment in threes here. And we have one people without a leader or God's presence does not equal three. This is where they get struck down and then the people say, oh, 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 okay, all right, all right, we'll go in, we'll go in. But they're not following the Lord. Says, no. So Moses says, no, 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 we have to do this with the Lord. No, 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 we'll do it anyway. So they go up and they get struck down. A mess. Here are the, here's the lesson from all of these bad threes that I want you to get. <clears throat> Blame mistakenly assumes permission. Did you know there's a difference between assume and presume? I've been looking this up recently. Different dictionaries say different things, but this is uh, my distilling of that. To assume something is to jump to a conclusion without much information. To presume something is to draw a conclusion based upon information. So, in this, blame mistakenly assumes permission. If we can find fault in something... It does more than just indicate a problem. We assume that we have the prerogative to reject and to criticize and to dismiss. So in the book of Numbers, the people see a good land, but they see big enemies. So that becomes God's fault. It's God's fault that these people are giants. Why didn't He make them little people? You see what they're doing? It's all God's fault. So God cannot be trusted. He is to be rejected. He is to be dismissed. He has no idea what He's doing. So this is His fault. Now, let's not just beat up on these guys. This is how this shows up today. Here's the classic. If God is responsible for the bad things that happen, well, because He could or should do something about it the way that I think He should, that means that He's responsible then I have permission to criticize, to reject, and to dismiss God. That's how we do this. How could a good God let bad things happen? This is His fault. But that's assuming, again, jumping to a conclusion without information, that's assuming that it is His fault. That's blaming God when we have no proof that would indicate that this is his fault. Now, you might say to that, well, he could have done something to stop it. Okay. That question calls for an explanation. That's true. But it cannot assign blame. There must be a reason, but it does not presume fault. And that's the mistaken step we take. We might ask why something happens, and we may... We may seek God for an explanation, but it doesn't assume that He's wrong. We even take it a step further. As soon as we assign fault, then we can reject and dismiss and we can criticize. And because everybody's doing it, I mean, that's what everybody does, so the majority must be right, right? The folly of the many. The majority does not guarantee what's right. Listen, just because we don't understand something, doesn't mean that we're right. 
And it doesn't mean that God's at fault. This is the folly of everybody's doing it. Thinking that the majority must be right. I mean, that many people can't be wrong, can they? Hmm. That's the folly of the many. That's the foolishness of these threes. Instead, the number three can also teach us the exact opposite out of this passage as well. So let's look at the future of the few who side with the one. Two plus one equals three. And these I find just remarkable. When the people carry out this foolishness in chapter 14 and they rebel, look at what Moses and Aaron do. Then Moses, Verse 5 of chapter 14. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite, Israelite assembly there. Moses, Aaron, and the Lord. Two plus one equals three. This is all that matters to them. End of story. I, I've just been thinking about the power of that. Hundreds of thousands of people standing in front of these two leaders and they rebel and what do they do? They don't rant, they don't rave. They fall on their faces before God. Oh God, what are they doing? They don't even speak. They're like it's you. And we too are going to join you. There's the few right there. I, I don't know. Maybe they were saying, "Forgive these people." That's certainly what Moses went on to say. Don't, 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 Lord, don't, don't kill these people in their foolishness. So Joshua and Caleb speak up in verses six through nine. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire assembly. The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, He will lead us into that land flowing with milk and honey and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. Joshua, Caleb, and the Lord. That's all we need. see another very positive three we see Caleb Joshua and the new generation so the Lord of course judges these and says you will not this generation will not enter that land but I find such an irony in chapter 14 verses 30 and 31 where he says not one of you the Lord is speaking not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home except Caleb and Joshua and as for the children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land that you have rejected. Here's the lesson from all of these good threes. Obedience correctly presumes provision. Okay, so the difference between assume and presume. Okay, so... Blame mistakenly assumes permission to criticize God. Obedience correctly presumes, based upon 
information that God will provide. You obey, and God will provide. He uses the name Jehovah Jireh to call himself the God who provides. Of course, Abraham is the great example of this as God tests him in Genesis chapter 22. Tells him he's going to make a great nation out of him. Of course, he doesn't have a son until he's 100 years old. And then he asks him to go and to sacrifice that one and only son. Abraham presumes provision if he will obey. So, I'll show you a couple ways that that happens. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 5, he says to his servants as they're going up to the mountain, Stay here with the donkey, and while I go, while I go with the boy over there, we will worship, and then we will come back to you. We fast forward to, 11, to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19, and we, he, we see an explanation of that we, where in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, it says of Abraham that he reasoned that God could even raise the dead. That's why he could say, we will come back. God will provide. I will sacrifice my son, but God will raise him from the dead. That's what he thought was going to happen. A picture, of course, of what was going to happen with God's own son. But he doesn't ask him to kill him. He provides in another way. Then they're walking up. That was just the first way. And then they're walking up. And, of course, Isaac's smart enough to realize, wait a minute, we've got the wood and we've got the fire, but where's the lamb? And then comes this incredibly profound statement from Abraham. God himself will provide the lamb. There is so much significance in that phrase, isn't there? Of course, ultimately, that's a prophecy towards God providing the perfect lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But even immediately, God ends up providing the ram caught in the thicket. And that's what's sacrificed. And we can most certainly presume provision when we obey. How many times have you had to learn that lesson? I mean, that's what I have to ask myself. How many times have I had to learn that lesson? From trusting God to provide for employment after I had gained permission of Marvin Maxson to marry his daughter and I didn't have a job? He actually did ask me that question after he told me he was thrilled that I would marry his daughter. But then he said, you got a job? (laughs) How are you going to provide for my daughter? Oh man, I worked so hard at that. I worked so hard at that. I worked so hard that the resume that I ended up developing at the school that I went to, they ended up using it as a model for quite some time to come, I understand. And God shut all of the doors. And everybody else wasn't even trying and they were getting a job. I mean, that's the way it looked like to me. And he shut all the doors with only one open because that was his provision for us. And I never would have gone through that door if all the other ones had been open. I would never have chosen that one. And we even find ourselves in this part of the country now, all these years later, rooted in that reality that God wanted us to do that. That was His provision. So that was a great test for me then. From trusting God, from trusting God in the face of a diagnosis that the doctors were certain was a malignancy. I had the head thoracic surgeon at Evanston Hospital, major medical uh, 
University uh, north of Chicago look at me and say, young man, you have lymphoma. Now, what you can hope is that it's Hodgkin's because that's more treatable. Well, I got this thing in my family, you know, this, you know, it's kind of this, you know, uh, this disease that some, you know, people get. And, they, and my wife was appalled. She, you know, worked under these doctors. She's like, you're, you're, you're questioning this man? Well, you know, it is in the family. Guess what? It didn't end up turning out to be what everybody thought it was. Was God going to provide so that we could continue to go where He wanted us to go? Or wasn't He? That was the test. I even had to study for final exams in seminary thinking I was dying. Talk about motivation to study. There was like none. Then the door's wide open again, trusting God to provide the support to go to very expensive Europe. And in less time than expected. So they hired me at the mission to be a recruiter. I did it for a year. Then I wanted to be in the country within the next nine months overseas. I mean, I wanted to get there before I was 30 years old, for heaven's sakes. And, and so I told them I was going to stop. They begged me to, to work another six months and said, my boss said to me, trust God. To provide. Well, I worked another six months and we were traveling, going to churches and everything else, to be perfectly honest, in the whole process. But from the 1st of January to leaving on the 16th of March, all of those funds came in. To myriads of ministry situations where we've needed to see God's hand of provision as we trusted and just plugged along in obedience. Then God turns left and we end up coming back to America. Once again, this phrase, God Himself will provide the land. Burned in my mind as I saw it, and I read, I wondered, I worried, was God going to provide now? I remember things were very, very tight financially. And I, I just knew we needed a little bit more. And then one day, out of the blue, from a completely unexpected source, a check shows up for $500, which, not a tremendous amount of money, but boy, to me, at that point, it was a huge amount of money. Just one more ram in the thicket. Learn the lesson of the few. The future is promising for the few who side with the one. Obedience correctly presumes provision. So, what's your provision worry? Employment? Financial resources? A diagnosis? An uncertain direction or future? Do you see the correct question to be asked? Not how will God provide, because you can presume that He will. 
And certainly not blaming God for everything that goes wrong. What is the obedient thing to do? What does obedience look like in this situation? What would He have me do so that He can show me what He wants to do? Learn from the few who side with the one. Two plus one equals three. Moses and Aaron face down before the Lord. The few before the Lord. Joshua and Caleb with the Lord. The few trusted God against all the odds of the others. Caleb and Joshua in the new generation. The few entered the land from the original generation. You good with that number? The number three? Let's pray. Such a common lesson, Lord. How many times we've heard it. How many times we've sung it. How many times we've chosen to obey and and seen you provide. And yet, how many times we fail to trust once again. Teach us to learn from the few. And to obey. And watch you provide. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.